Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a couple pastor scholars dig into the Word of God using a seasonally appropriate scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all and equipping especially for pastors and teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. But we do hope it'll just be uh, enjoyable and uh, and a useful study for all who listen in. Now, I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary and at Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Ken Shank. Ken is the uh, vice president of uh, planning and innovation, I think is his title, and a New Testament scholar and a wonderful guy who teaches in a whole range of subject matters and a dear friend of mine and a former dean of mine, former teacher of mine, and and a friend of the show, regular on the show. So, so happy to have Ken back this week to discuss our text, which is Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 through 23. Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 through 23. Make sure to subscribe to the show if you're not already, so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you enjoy the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show on to others so they might benefit as well. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Ken. Well, welcome to Fresh Text. We're uh, looking at Exodus chapter 33, 12 to 23. Ken, do you have a translation out of your choice that you'd like to read? And then I'll say well, a prayer and we'll jump in. I have, uh, just by coincidence, the NRSV in front of me. All right, go for it. Verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, you have said to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways so that I might know you and find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. He said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way, we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you've asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Show me your glory, I pray. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. And the Lord continued, see, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for this text, for this moment in the covenantal history, uh, for Ken, and for this hour that we've set aside to 
uh, read and hear the Word of God and to explore it. And we ask that by your Spirit, we would be led to see what we are meant to see and to have our eyes hidden from what you wish that we do not see. And the same for hearing. May we hear what is to be heard and say what is to be said and not hear what must remain silent and ourselves be silent with that which ought not be said. Lord, give us the wisdom by your Spirit to discern uh, among these things and to rightly divide the Word of God. We ask this through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so what grabs your attention uh, afresh as you read this text? What's uh, what's grabbing you today? Well, I'll be interested to know some of your thoughts, too. I, I remember that you took a whole course in Romans 9 through 11 uh, at Princeton. And, of course, um, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I think that's uh, quoted by Paul in Romans 9, is it not? Um, so that'll that's be, right. be, interesting yeah. to, be interesting to hear some of your thoughts on on that. I'm always, I'm always, um, uh, and, and I'm, you know, I have my own issues, no doubt. I'm always struck by the question of anthropomorphism here because I don't think God has a face or a back, um, literally. And I think probably most of us take this, uh, metaphorically or, or anthropomorphically, um, when we read about God, he says, you cannot see my face. He doesn't say, I don't have a face. Uh, he says, I'll let you see my back. And so I've, I always wonder, I mean, when I read passages like this, I always think, well, this is anthropomorphic. But I wonder if it was for the author of Exodus or for Moses, you know, did Moses actually think of God as having a face? Um, that those are some of the interesting questions I, for me that I ask occasionally. Um, things that we understand to be anthropomorphisms and I think rightly so, as Christians, as we read scripture, did the original authors think of them as anthropomorphisms? Or is that part of our progressive understanding of revelation? But anyway, so that's the first thing that jumps out at me in my yeah, peculiar it's, it's, way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's huge because I had, I had a thought about anthropomorphism in an episode I was recording yesterday, in fact, on the previous chapter with Eric Barreto. And I had this thought, I didn't put it very clearly uh, on that episode, which would be last week for our listeners. And the thought is something like this. Anthropomorphism is, is a really good aside, you know, like, well, this is probably not, you know, don't take it too literally. It's a really, it's, I think, really good aside. It's a mediocre conclusion, right? To, at the end of a lot of argument, okay, it's kind of where you should probably land, um, I say mediocre because it, it's not very interesting, actually. Uh, <laughs> best as a side, it's okay to be a, a conclusion of a, of a philosophical argument. Um, I think it's a really bad presumption. That I think it makes us not read texts well. If we just come in, well, obviously it's an anthropomorphism, right? Because here, and let me say why for funsies real quick is because the whole text just falls apart because having God as a character in a story is already an anthropomorphism. Having God speak is anthropomorphic, right? It's oh, there's always like just the fact of, so anthropomorphism is not actually 
it, it actually covers every single word and moment, you know? Yeah. Even the events of God, even, even God's acts are sort of anthropomorphic actions, let yeah. alone the words and texts. So, so it kind of wreaks havoc if you bring it in as a presupposition to control your exegesis of what's possible. That doesn't mean I'd rule it out as an aside or as a conclusion, but at least as a entering in, I'm with you that the best place to start is to say, uh, the author and the original hearers of this text seem to be taking it that God has a back and a front and you can see one and you, you should see one and shouldn't see the other. <laughs> I mean, like, because the text just, even, even the plays on words and stuff in the text don't work right? without, without taking them seriously, if not literally. Right. Well, to me, it's the, it's a principle of revelation that God does not reveal in absolute terms. God yeah. reveals himself to us, even himself, himself, yep. you know, God reveals God's self to us in categories that are familiar and intelligible uh, to us. Yep. Um, and I would say ever. That's always true. Even in the eschaton, it's always, yes. media- it's always mediated or we would cease to be creatures. You would have to be God to know God the way God knows God. So, so the, the idea actually, that this I'll- text hints at that insight actually in a weird way, you know, it's at least gestures at it. That's, I don't think that's necessarily what the authors and original readers were thinking, but it, 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 that's a way of taking one of the implications of the text is there is a kind of knowing and not knowing, right? Right. That that is part of the story, right? You can't know his face. So even though what we're saying here is pretty, can seem a little hermeneutical throat clearing. I think it's actually very befitting of this text to ask these kinds of questions. I think the text invites a kind of, there's, there's a lot of mystery and a lot of playfulness with these, can, with these words. It's almost the author almost knows that these words are a little tongue in cheek, right? I mean, the pre he talks about his presence, which in Hebrew is face, right? My face will go yes. with you. Yeah. And then later he says, you can't see my face, but he, pro- so, I mean, there's a game being played here. And even the reference to, all the people on the face of the earth, right? So this, the word face is repeated like a bunch of times. That's great. That's what I noticed today. As you were reading, oh, I was like, oh. presence, isn't the word for presence benign. And I checked and I'm like, yep. <laughs> I mean, so how many times only... I'll just, I'll just give you a, a quick count. So well, okay. starting, if you jump one verse back to verse 11, Moses spoke to God face to face, which creates, I, I think we need to include that verse in our discussion just as a man speaks to a friend. So that's verse 11. If you start with 11, it goes 11, 14, 15, 16, 19, 19 again, 20, 23. So that's eight uses of benai or panai, excuse me. Uh, yeah. Panai, my bad. Panayim, yeah. Panayim, right, because you pluralize it. Because also the, it, it's used as this kind of, uh, as a preposition to go before you is kind of, the panayim of the Lord will go panay you, right? So yeah. <laughs> the beforeness of God will go before you or, or the face of God will go before your face. So it's, 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 it's clearly like, uh, if not the theme of this, you know, that's spectacular. And, and of course I would, I would, um, I like the idea that in the end, our pretensions, again, I'm, I'm going a little allegorical here, I suppose, that our pretensions to knowledge of God, we're always only seeing the, the rear end of God, as it were. Uh, all of our pretensions to knowledge are but the rear end. Uh, no, no, maybe back, maybe I'm taking that. Uh, 
Luther, of course, had a famous uh, sermon. I, you've probably read it. I haven't read it uh, about the the uh, the rear end of God based yes. on this. Um, what does he? What the does he say? Gotus. Yes. What does he say in that uh, in that sermon? Have you read it? Well, uh, no, I've heard Bud's lecture on it, which I imagine okay. you have as well. And the the basic idea is the theology of the cross that the glory of God for us un- comes under its opposite, right? Eustia aliena. And so he ends up talking about the cross, right? Because that's the culmination of the backside of God, is the truest revelation of God is this dead man. It's it, light shines in the darkness, as it were. So that's the kind of play from, from what I recall from that great lecture. And it, 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 you know, you see these themes. And so you see that even when you say like, even the, even God's most definitive revelation in Christ, there is this mysterious um, appearing under their opposite, under his opposite as his mode of, of being revealed. And yeah, I I don't think it's, uh, and it, and it links back to the opening because he starts to ask, let me see your ways and will your face go with us? There is whether Moses realizes it or not, there's this movement so seeing the backside of God, because it's not God standing still and per- turning his back on Moses. It's God passing by. So there's a lot of movement in the story. So that seeing his backside is not a sort of, you know, it's an invitation to follow, right? In a way. I don't know. At least that's some of what I, I, I think backside is nice because that's, you know, appropriate, not too uh, raunchy, but uh, it signals, but, but, but I mean, it, if you talk about the right hand and left hand, any any Old Testament text, if there's like a left hand and a right hand, you would comment on, well, in that era, they would think right had this meaning left. So surely the same rules apply to face and back, right? That this is, you know, um, the glory, right? And the shame is in the back, right? I mean, that's, yeah. I don't think that's, I don't think that's a stretch. You know, we were, we were talking before the recording and, um, uh, again, this may be uh, going well beyond the text, but um, in that conversation, I was thinking sometimes we only see God in the rearview mirror. Hmm. Uh, sometimes we only see God after He's already gone somewhere, uh, so to speak. We don't we don't see Him coming necessarily from the front, uh, but we see where He's gone from the back. Again, this is a, a little bit of an allegorization of sure of the image, but um, that I, I did want to mention that thought that occurred to me in some conversation we were having. Um, well, early. to see the backside of God is not a, is not God rejecting you of his presence. It's him leading. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, okay. I don't know exactly what you want and what you're doing, but I can see that you're heading forward and it's my place to follow. And why would I want to be in front of God? I mean, I would want to, I want to be behind God. If we're going, and again, to use a military metaphor if we're going into battle i want to be behind hercules not in front of him yeah uh, right <laughs> but uh but then after the battle's over or before the battle's over and it's time to uh so either before the battle in strategy or after the battle in debrief and in celebration there is a place for that face to face time which is so striking in verse 11 you know that that just seems to stand in direct contradiction the lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. Right. And that how interesting that that's right before then this passage. And yet not, not by sight. Would you agree with this? I mean, so 
this seeing of God's backside is a very unique yes. experience. It happens once, as far as I can tell, for Moses in his entire in his entire life, and yet God's presence is with him all the time, and he's face to face all all the time, and so. Again, uh, yeah, it's used to speak it. The emphasis is on the word there and it's him going into the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord, you know, so the, so there is an apparition, but it's in the form of the cloud, the pillar, right? The pillar of cloud and right. fire. So he's face to face with this non human object. And so there is a kind of more, that's why it's, it, it, this is an anthropomorphism in the, um, in the sort of straightforward literary sense of he's, yeah, yeah. He, he has a, he has a backside, he's walking by, um, and take away my hand, you know, so that this, uh, no, I agree. It's almost, it's almost perfectly placed to kind of like signal at least to whether for Moses own formation, at least for us as readers, it's like, just in case you got the thought that him speaking face to face meant that he had, you know, absolute, you know, container like knowledge of God, you know, uh, well, when he seeks to really truly see and not just hear and speak, but truly see the most that can be given is the backside of God. And that itself is, is already something that makes him glow, you know, as, as, as happens later. Yeah. Um, because of it though, you know, so, so, so like in verse, in verse 14, you know, my face will go with you. My presence will go with you. That's not always clear. Uh, mm. We know it's true. Again, you feel free to push back on on this reading. You've not let verse twelve. You, you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Like Moses is looking for someone visible, someone hmm. someone he can see and touch, um, and yet God's face goes with him. But his face is something Moses can't exactly see. Oh I mean, like, man, that's. Uh, I mean, he's almost driving him back to a relationship of word, right? It's like I'm promise. I've promised my presence i've promised my face that's unseen oh that's really good that's really good that's good let's take a break and come back and dig in more deeply with that and other themes and we're back welcome back to fresh text with my uh, guest ken shank regular on the show we're looking at exodus chapter 33 Verses 12 through 23, 12 through 23. So yeah, you pointed out something really interesting that another kind of play on the promise that he gives in verse 14, because that's God's first line, I believe, in the passage. Yes, it is. Um, the promise. So it, you could think of the whole thing as kind of doubling back to that, right? My face will go with you. And I will give you rest. And then the pushback to say, hey, give us some assurance of that. And then he asks for, I mean, oh, there it is again, 17. The Lord uh, Lord said to Moses, this very thing that I have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight. (laughs) And I know you by name. Remember earlier he was talking about how he saw him face to face and, and Moses knows his name. Now he's kind of flipping it around, right? You know, I know you by name. You're, you have found favor in my sight. And that's the thing I have spoken, right? As if I feel like even though this is a, this is a vision of God, a, a sort of strange kind of vision of God, a theophany, as it were, 
it's it's a theophany kind of designed to drive the characters in the story and i think us as readers back to the word of god um i know that might sound like some kind of clever little protestant thing um, there are other passages where the vision of god is the point this is one where i think no the vision is actually designed to to almost like dissatisfy and to drive back to trust in the word right i don't know again that's maybe my uh my Paulinism showing too, right? Because uh, <laughs> that's Bart. totally what's that? Well, yeah, sure. well, he, he got it. He got it from Paul. Because um, Paul does, you know, Paul really likes to highlight the word, right? In, in in Romans, right? In Romans ten, where it's like, don't ask where the word is. That quote from Deuteronomy, right? It's it's in your mouth. It's near you. You know, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, because the word has come to you by preaching, right? This kind of Moses is is this utterly unique person who can hear God and speak for God. And so then when he asks to see God, he kind of gets a, he gets a kind of non-answer or a, a, a yes and a no, or a no wrapped in a yes or something like that, you know, the, <laughs> same with the name, you know, it parallels the name, name scene in, in, in burning bush. Like, you know, his name, well, name that's not a normal name. Right. And the name comes in here. Yeah. The name is here in verse 19. He says, I will make my goodness and proclaim the name Yahweh. Hmm. Um, the, his good, it's almost as if, if his goodness is in the name or embodied in some mm-hmm. way in the name Yahweh. And one possibility is to take it that the rest of that sentence is, in a, is one ex, is an extension of his name, right? Because back in the burning bush right. story, I will be who I will be. Right. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. So now it's it's got a similar rhythm, but now there's like a content built in because the I will be who I will be is kind of gives you nothing. And who he is is gracious. Yes. So it's, it's a, which goes back to your early point is God's revelation is not absolute in a moment. It it, it unfolds, right? So you're fathers would call this the divine pedagogy, right? He's God is slowly leading us into deeper awareness of who he is, um, clarifying, correcting, confirming what came before. Is it, I mean, it does, you know, I am, you do get the vibe that, um, that he is being specifically gracious to Moses here in a way that he's not gracious uh, to other people. Um, of course, you know, being a Wesley, including the Israelites sometimes. <laughs> sure. Sure. Right. <laughs> Ready to blow him up the previous chapter. <laughs> being, being a Wesleyan, I like to think that God has a certain kind of universal threshold of graciousness to all people. That's that's as much comes from my theology between the text as from the text itself. Although I think we could find biblical, you know, texts to support that. But of course, Paul, uh, if, if you I don't know if you want to go there, but in Romans nine, uh, I take Paul to basically say, look, God's the boss here. He can do what he wants to do and you need to just deal with it. And not everybody gets a a Moses uh, theophany. Um, some people do, some people don't. I mean, again, you may not, I don't know if you agree with me on this, but I've, I've come to the conclusion that there are, there are some people who have more theophanies than other, others, so to, so to speak. In fact, I would, I would, I would put your wife, Amanda in this, in this category, uh, maybe uh, as somebody who, who seems to have, again, maybe I, I, I can't speak for her, um, who has uh, regular miraculous encounters with uh, with God in a way that I I don't. But um, 
uh, again, I believe in a fundamental graciousness that God shows all people. Uh, but it just, it, uh, as I processed my own uh, spiritual pilgrimage, it, it seems to me that I have fewer um, divine encounters than, say, a Judy Crossman uh, uh, does. I don't know what you think about that, but uh, I wrestled with that at one point of my of my spiritual journey. Uh, I read a book, um, can't remember the author, maybe John Robinson, Honest to God, something like that, you know, in which he's, he talks about how he was at theological college and other people seemed to be getting blessed all the time, and he wasn't. And, um, of course, even Moses, you know, what he's 80 years old when he has his first really big encounter. So there's, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not even there yet. Um, maybe yours just hasn't happened yet, Ken. But... Um, <laughs> Anyway, this is the stream of consciousness on that verse. I'll be gracious to whom I'll, I'll, I'll be gracious in relation to this appearance to, to Moses showing him his backside. No, I think it's a crucial theological question that's raised not only because that line, uh, as you mentioned earlier, is is quoted by Paul in Romans 9 to 11, pretty integral to the argument. And a lot of the characters in that story are people who've been chosen by God with a particular task. Now, I think nine Romans nine to 11, as well as passages like this. If we always think election is always, if we always link election to our salvation and eternal destiny, that's, I think actually where we get lost and confused because that's often not what's that's almost never actually uh, on the page. Um, election, God's gracious election is usually oriented more towards vocation than, than salvation as it were. Not that those are totally separate, but I think that's a crucial insight that I think helps make sense of these texts. And I mean, even our Wesleyan Arminian denomination and tradition that we're from, where we'll talk about conversion and ultimate destiny as something that God grants only with our consent. We actually tend to not talk that way about calls to the ministry, <laughs> right? And I think we're right to, because I think that's actually, the scriptures do talk, I think, about a universal grace of God. And it, the scriptures also talk about the the, the free agency of, of humans in response. Um, but when it talks about special individuals set aside for a special moment in time, it's usually pretty unilateral. And, and I think recognizing that unilaterality in Paul's life, you see it in Jeremiah in Isaiah. And I mean, I I've seen it happen, uh, you know, in our own time. And, and, and so I think to me, like, it's good news that God doesn't choose all of us because there's always so choose all of us for these kinds of theophanies. Cause they're almost always linked to a great suffering on behalf of the people. So, I mean, this is, this is already, this is an interpretive thing, but it can even start to be thinking about in preaching, like, it might be a mistake. It's well, it would be a mistake. It was definitely a mistake to assume that a faithful sermon on this text is going to be about how to get a theophany, how to experience God face to face. That's assuming that this is for all of us when the text could just as well, if not more likely be talking about a unique experience for Moses and to not recognize that as an insult to you, but actually it's a burden for him to bear, you know, um, cause this is not about him, right? This is all about the people going into the land and being given rest. Even when he says, my face will go before you and I will give you rest. I mean, in some sense, Moses doesn't get to experience the fullness of this because he doesn't get to go in. Yeah. Well, you bring in Hebrews four here, you know, yeah, they did not enter into my rest. Right. Right. Well, on, you've got two layers, right? You've got the layer of the fact that he just literally doesn't go 
into the promised land, the literal promised land. Moses doesn't, or that whole generation, only Joshua and Caleb. But then also that, right, you say from Hebrews, even those who do go into the promised land are not fully entering into the rest of God. Absolutely. Yeah. I think somehow growing up, and this this may be a, a narcissistic thing, but I know I'm not the only one. Somehow I think I grew up thinking that uh, the kinds of experiences that Moses had were normative. Mm-hmm. Uh, somehow in the post-Pentecost time, we should all be having Elijah, you know, um, Abraham, Moses, and, and, and I, you know, maybe, maybe we should, but, but I, you know, it's kind of an aha moment. I mean, it's kind of a dull aha moment to realize, you know, I, I, I might not be as important to salvation history as Moses was. (laughs) Well, that's called a deep duh, right? Like it's like, (laughs) duh, but it's actually a deep insight. And it's a function of our, our individualism, right? Is that we're just, our default setting as modern readers and hearers is to put ourselves in Moses shoes. And there's upsides to that. Cause I think the personal encounter, I think we are invited. I mean, some way to look at it is to think that maybe, I mean, maybe we're sort of, you know, I don't, I mean, this is maybe silly, but I mean, my, my inclination is to always think that, that what is achieved in Christ is that he experiences this for us. He sees the face of God and, and in, in an important sense is the face of God. And so that's why I say, even in the eschaton, it's a mediated knowledge of God because it's a vision of Christ, the risen Christ, another human being. And so um, even the most, so I, 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 there's a part of me that wants to, I, I don't want to drive a wedge between God and Christ, although there is a distinction uh, because of the two natures. But I mean, Maybe this is a normative experience for, or if not normative, at least, yeah, normative in the sense of prescriptive, not descriptive, not, not the average experience, but the normative experience of something like this with Jesus, right? Um, and what does that look like? It looks like things like reading the gospels and like having a sense of the kinds of things that Jesus is and does, you know, I think, I think all Christians can have quote, a personal relationship with Jesus, but that's not exactly the same thing as having a personal relationship with God. It is, but it also isn't. I mean, the two nature doctrine implies, no, actually it's not. It's mediated <laughs> through this, through this one man, this risen man. I don't know if, if that resonates with you or if that, or if I'm now just so far away from the text that it's not even helping anymore, but <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, I'm in Christ. Yeah. Christ is in me. And he's at the right hand of the father. And so it's something we're participating in. And so it can be normative. It can be a normative reality without being a normative experience. I don't know if that distinction makes any sure. sense. You know, sure. there's a sense in which, yeah, this is all true for us. We are all like Moses hidden in the cleft of the rock and seeing the backside of God. Um, in yeah, and of course, Christ, so. We are included in that, but that doesn't mean our experiences have to match up with that. And we should celebrate those who do. And those who do should learn that, He's also being put in his place here. He's not being given a direct vision. He's seeing the backside and he's been driven back to trust the promise rather than to see the whole, you know? You brought up the cliff of the rock. We should mention that old hymn oh, somewhere. Yeah. It somewhere. He hideth my soul uh, in the cleft of the rock um, that shadows a dry, thirsty land, something like that. Now, is that uh, actually from... Uh, is that from the Elijah story? Am I making a mistake? Here? Ah, okay, okay. I'm Maybe. trying to remember. No, I'm owning that myself. I said cleft of the rock. Uh, first King, yeah, First Kings nineteen nine and ten. 
I'm wondering if I'm combining, although, you know, if you were no, to do the, the rocks there as well. Okay. I wonder if that, cause I didn't see my translation didn't have cleft. Yours didn't. And I was wondering if maybe I'm just uh misremembering. No, no, no. That's that. But oh, I there think it both, is cleft. Both, I see it. 22 both passages, both passages 22. in first Kings 19 and here. Yeah. I will put you in a cleft of the rock. Yeah. I missed it. Cause he, there's verse 21 has a place. Behold, there is a place by me, which is really interesting. I mean, that's already anthropomorphism, right? To have God have a place where he is. He has a hand. Yeah. Where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft. And I love it. Not you go in. He puts him in there, puts you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I'm passed by, which is so cool because you almost get this image of, is God just like, I mean, just, I'm just taking it literally for funsies, right? Is he just like really big and he like puts the hand over and walks by and then lets the hand off? Or is it like <laughs> he, or is he like man-sized and walking by, but then this huge hand comes down. I remember picturing that, that as a child, right? That there's this like, you know, this like 10 foot tall, you know, old man walking by, but then this big <laughs> hand next to him, like... <laughs> So, so having watched way too much, uh, uh, too, way too many uh, Marvel comics movies, yeah, um, I, I was thinking of uh, the the origin uh, movie of Wolverine, uh, or, or one of the Wolverine movies where there's a nuclear explosion, uh, Nagasaki or something, and he shields um, this Japanese soldier from from the blast. But I mean, um, uh, that may be completely inappropriate. Or you could show a clip of that at the beginning of your sermon. But um, uh, it reminds you of, reminds reminds me of of how um, the fear of the Lord. You know, God God is an awesome mm. awesome God, and uh, He may not be trying to hurt us, uh, but His His awesomeness and magnitude um, is unbearable to to us as finite uh, humans. Yeah, you, know, you cannot had, see my face, for yes. a man shall not see me. And live, and even he has that, to pr- protect us from himself. Yeah, you know, almost. Even that him um, to hide me in the cleft of the rock is to protect me from himself. I mean, when a when 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 an adult holds a baby carefully, they're not just protecting them from outsiders. You're holding them in such a way that you will not crush them. Do you know what I mean? You can't hug the baby the way you do uh, a lad. You know that you have to be real gentle. You know. So there's a gentleness here, a, a mercy and grace by hiding him in the cleft. Yeah, that's good. Well, let's take a quick break and come back and explore some sermon starters. Sound good? Okay. All right, welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Ken Shank, and we are looking at Exodus Chapter 33, verses 12 through 23, 12 through 23. Let's explore some sermon starters. If you were preaching on this text, maybe you got called up. It's We're doing this on a Friday. You know, say you just got called up and you're filling in this Sunday. Um, where would you go? You know, where, what would be your, your theme, your direction, the shape of the sermon? Where would you go with it? Well, I mean, um, I've already kind of uh, given one semi semi allegory um in that sense is, is that we we one we need to let god lead but that we often know god 
in hindsight. Um, we see we see him from the backside, not from Ooh, hindsight. That's got uh, double meaning. That's nice because <laughs> it's clear maybe, when you look backwards, but also yeah. his hindsight. Oh, yeah, that's maybe good. maybe a, a title for a sermon: God in hindsight. Yeah, um, little little bit better than Luther's title, but um, yeah, that that sense that that um, God's presence is leading. We don't always see it in a visible kind of concrete way, which is which is always difficult for us. We want to see where God is going, but we often see where God is going in 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 retrospect. Um, I also thought of um, uh, Isaiah Isaiah seven, you know, where Ahaz. Isaiah is offering, God is offering Ahaz a sign. Ahaz doesn't want the sign. He wants to do what he can see. Um, so he's a kind of a counter, an anti-type of uh, following God's presence you can't see. So that was where my, my mind first went, um, following God in hindsight. I love that. And it's so helpful then. I mean, in terms of how, what from the exegetical could be drawn into the sermon, but in a more homiletical way, all this, all the plays on face, this would be a fun week to, to work on, to work out your own translation. Uh, even if you don't know the Hebrew, just, just thematically, you know, using an interlinear on Bible hub, yeah. just try to use a, a version of the word face every time that word appears and leave your translation otherwise, you know, and like actually get that translation so that you can, because then you can play with that face stuff of, of like really what it means to follow God is actually for his face to be turned away. And when you think God is absent, that may in fact be his presence, his movement. Uh, maybe we've stood still when he's moving forward. Because you can put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites, not Moses, and just say, because the promise is to go with you, plural, with the people, right? And so they're all going to be trusting in the face of God moving ahead, you know, uh, even if you don't have to have this uh, wild experience to have those principles apply even to the Israelites and then also to us. And if you, if you go to, to interlinearbible.com or biblehub.com, interlinear backslash interlinear, it's, um, it's, it usually is translated presence, but it's number, it's Strong's number 6440 if you want to kind of trace that word through this passage in Hebrew. Yeah, no, it's great. And I mean, you could flip it for fun and just translate a presence all of the time, one time through, just to see what happens, right? I know I'm camping on translation, but I mean, I often think that the translation we select and or prepare um, and or edit for a sermon is actually a really important uh, moment, right? Because it, it can really bring in some emphases and themes and it helps it because honestly, like I, I, for one, am a little, I tire of the, now what it really says in the original, like it has a kind of, I don't know, a kind of talking down. It can, it can be condescending. It depends on the culture of the church. I understand, but it seems to me, it's like, well, if that was true, then why don't you just fix the translation for us and start with that? Right. And so then we'll just know that whatever we heard at the beginning or throughout the sermon is going to correspond to the, the, the emphasis that you wanted to highlight for us. Um, and again, I don't think you need to be an expert to have the, the confidence to do some just gentle translation work around a theme again. So that way I'm not asking our listeners who may not know the originals to, 
have to do a, a completely fresh translation, but just once you've done good English Bible exegesis and you've noticed a pattern, a theme, then you can go through and do some changes. I mean, my, my, my ESV here is just full of like words crossed out and a different word that, that I prefer, yeah. like a bit, just a different way to translate that word in order to bring out a, a recurring theme. You know what I mean? And uh, I don't know what Lenny, I don't know what Lenny Lucchetti, you know, would think about this, but I, I don't personally, uh, and this can be done in a very respectful of scripture way of, of kind of, if you have three versions in front of you, and you have a sermon you believe that you the Lord wants you to preach to kind of modify some of the words in one with words that are used in another. I mean, absolutely, it's uh, totally appropriate. Create recommended. your own. Yeah. Yep. That, so that so that the scripture as you're presenting it fits the sermon you're preaching hand in hand in glove. Mm-hmm. I think it, I think it's totally appropriate, and part of it's just being honest. If somebody asks, you're like, "Oh, I'm drawing on a number of different translations." to capture the, 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 the emphasis of the week. Yeah. I mean, the only, the only error, the only heresy there is then if you like sort of present that as this is the correct definitive translation, right? But if you're just saying this is the one for the week. And if I preach on yeah. this same text four years from now, I'm going to have something different. Right. So then if it's, as long as it's held loosely and held lightly, I think it's totally respectful and appropriate. I mean, the counter, the counter argument is uh, uh, your, your congregation needs that it's beneficial to your, I've, this is what I've heard, that it's beneficial for your congregation to know a particular translation that they, you know, that you're reliably using, that, that they can follow, that you're not saying something different than what they're reading. Yeah, the smartphone has completely changed that though, right? So if people are using, if people are reading a Bible on their phone with a U version out, they can switch translations like that, like nothing. So the idea that you're going to have a whole church all using one translation, just, I just don't, I don't see that anymore happening. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but uh, again, listeners feel free to push back on us. If you've found that it's really helpful to have a kind of the, the translation for that local community. I, I mean, I, I understand the case for it. It really mattered when I was growing up that we were all quoting scripture um, from the NIV. So it had, you, you had that rhythm, you know, and memorization worked better. Illusion worked better because of that. So I'm not against it in principle, but in practice, the digital age has kind of really made multiple translations easily accessible to the, and actually the fact is if you've got people without the training flipping between translations already, maybe it'd be good to do it, you know, (laughs) and do it well, model how to do it, you know, how to, but I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm making too, too much of a case of that. No. Yes, I like I like this sermon idea, this main one that you presented of the uh, seeing God in hindsight or God in hindsight. That's a great title, and I only pitched the face thing because I was thinking like instead of points, like if you you could do a first round because it's a narrative, a conversation where you just kind of like I could see writing a paragraph or two, uh, commenting on each time that word uh, panim appears as a, just a, as a thought experiment to get my sermon up and running with that theme, building up to that theme. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you're, if, if the text read had face every time face was there, I think the, uh, the congregation would, would find that striking. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's cool. I don't know. I almost want to try that. Cause I mean, you and I, you know, we're not preachers like the real ones, right? I mean, we preach, <laughs> but <laughs> I've heard that not of you, but of me. You're a teacher, Ken. Yeah, I get the same thing, man. Whatever is what it is. 
This is why I started the podcast, man, because I like prepping more than preaching anyway. <laughs> so I'd rather just help people with their prep and then move on. <laughs> um, I don't know. You want to just try it because then someone who's listening in can kind of feel if that – and this is just translation thing. But they probably start, a, with a, start with 11. Heck yeah. Let's go for this. Um, so Yahweh spoke to Moses face to face. As a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the temple. And Moses said to Adonai, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know uh, who you will send with me. Interesting. I don't know if that's a, if Joshua also stands in contrast to that. Is he talking about Joshua? I don't know. And yet you have said, I know you by name and I have found, and that you have found favor or grace in my sight. My eyes. In my eyes. Yes. Very good. Now, therefore, if I pray, I have found grace in your sight. Show me now your way that I may know you. And that I may find grace in your eyes. I'm going to keep doing eyes. Yeah, keep, it, keep it very imagery, literal. Keep face, it very. The face imagery I has, it to eyes. Be, has to be intentional. And consider also your people. This nation is your people. And he said, doesn't say who said, and he said, my face will go and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if not, your face will go with us. If it does not go with us, do not bring us from this place. For what then will will it be There's known here that I that, that, that I have found grace in your eyes? You're right, eyes. You got to go with eyes. That that makes it even more intense. I and your people, except if you go with us. So that we shall be separate and your people from all the people who are on the face of the earth. So Adonai said to Moses, also this thing that you have spoken, I will do for you, for you, I will do for you have found grace in my eyes. Not of grace. And yeah. And I know you by name. And he said, show me, please, your glory kabod and he said your weight your glory your and he said i will make a pass i will make pass all my goodness my tov not my kabod interestingly i will make my tov go before your face yeah. <laughs> and i will proclaim the name Hashem. <laughs> can't say it naughty word uh I will proclaim the name Adonai before your face and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one, no man shall see me and live. And Adonai said, here is a place next to me you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory he does say glory there. Glory passes by that. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while 
you I will pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my backside, but my face will not be seen. Man, it's so, I think adding eyes helps because then it gets real visceral, right? Yeah. Um, and a lot of seeing. Sight, past. eyes, see. And then weirdly, it's so fun to like, I mean, this might be a different sermon, but it, I think it would be, it'd be, it'd be a twist halfway through the sermon to really emphasize the seeing, 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 and maybe even highlight the desire among, especially if you have a congregation that has a slightly more charismatic bent that's desiring to see God, right? You know, we even have songs, I want to see you, you know, and the, the fun twist could be even when he sees him, he doesn't really see him and he drives him back to that opening line. That's why I would start with verse line. It's really about speaking. It's really about hearing. It's really about conversation with God, us talking to God, God talking to us. And if God wants to bless you with a vision, great. You can ask for it. Great. But recognize that that's usually corresponds with the, the, the suffering service <laughs> of a prophetic ministry. So make sure you really want it. If you go ask him for it, but there can be a, a conversation with God. That might be the twist that I would play, you know? I was also thinking, um, as you read it, another verse that struck me, basically, uh, listen, if you're not going with us, I, I don't want to go up. So, which also fits with that idea of us seeing the after of God, the, the after me, I think is what the Hebrew says there with, you know, God, let God lead and let's not go up unless God's leading. And of course, that was never a question probably for God. It was a question for Moses. It was more Moses's. I mean, would you go with this? It was Moses's doubt. You know, I don't want to go up unless you're in front of me. Um, and God is is perhaps well, of course. But um, but Moses. But but, there, but we do sometimes try to get out in front of God when we don't we don't wait when we should wait. But um, anyway, that struck me when you read through at that time uh, that verse where he says basically, you know, don't 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 send us up unless you're going to go first. What verse was that? Yeah, no, that was uh, in verse 15, I think. Yeah, yeah. He said to him, if your face will not go with me, do not bring us up from here, you know. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Yeah, so, I mean, this is the distinction. He says, you know, going with us so that we are distinct. Like, even the distinctness of the community rests in his presence with them. Um, his face going before them. I just, I love this thought. I mean, for discernment in our own lives, I mean, I think this is a, this could be a really great sermon about discernment and trust. You know, um, when we talk about seeing God, what does it really mean to see God? Is this just a sort of uh, personal favor to make us feel good and, you know, make the hairs stand up on the back of our neck. Well, you know, maybe God is gracious. He, he might grant such gifts, but at least in this passage, boy, the, the vision of God is, is, is just entirely bound up with uh, his movement forward, right? His direction. And I know that when I'm, I'll just, I'll just speak, you know, from experience and see how this, this may or may not fit into, well, I'll stop giving advice on preaching. I'll just preach and see what people do. Do what you will with this listeners, dear listener, <laughs> let the reader understand. I'm just talking here. Uh, 
when I try, like when I go like on a prayer retreat or something, if I come in like with a specific decision I want to make, it usually really clouds things up and I don't get anywhere because I'm trying to ask where, where it's going to end up. I'm asking as it were to put myself in these shoes. It's me trying to like get a layout of the promised land. You know, I want to know the final thing because you know what the fact is, this is the idolatry built in that. I want to get myself there. So tell me the end and I'll find the means. That's where I get stuck. And that's how we think of vision often in churches. But there is an, there, then there's an opposite error to watch out for. And that's if I'm just trying to, again, if God wishes to give it great, uh, but just to sort of like see God, just to see God, you know, like, which is just maybe having a moment of that here. Right. Cause he's asked for something. And God says, I'll give it. And he asks for more. And he's like, yeah, okay, what you said, I'll give to you. And then he asks, can I see your glory? It's like the biggest ask you could give in a way. And there there can be a, a temptation, I think, for some of us as we grow nearer to God is to get disconnected. This is the, so if the, if the first is the temptation of those who are overdefined by the active life, God, give me the end and I'll find the means. There are also those of us, and some of us have both moments in our lives <laughs> who are overdetermined by the, the contemplative life. And it's just like, oh, I just want to see God's glory and bask in that as a kind of end in itself, you know. Now, God's glory isn't an end in itself, but me seeing it is not, it's not yet the time for that. I have a, I have a role to play on this earth. And so the, the hind parts of God is kind of this middle way between an, a, a sort of contemplative and active extremes, right? Uh, of a, of an active extreme that wants to know the end and I'll find the means in my own human energy or a contemplative extreme that just wants to bask in the glory of God without any sense of direction of where things are heading. Because it turns out to see God is to die, right? You can't see God and live. Or if I am to see God, it's only his hind parts and he's moving, inviting me to follow. I think that's the kind of little sermonette that I have to throw out. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. How's that strike you? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, definitely. I mean, I'm, I tend to be a more of a goal, you know, I, I'm not a natural contemplative, so I need more of the, of the uh, weight. I I need to be told wait. Others people need to be told go. I thought it's interesting that, that we might be distinct. Um, Mm. And of course that plays into uh, other discussions we've had already about Mm. election and, and, and so forth. But but um, I was wondering if, if a person could make a play between the face of the earth and the face of God, that um, hmm. that those those who are following the face of God are distinct from those who are on the face of the earth. A little dualistic there, maybe. Uh, but it's a nice not. play because there's humble humility in it because, of course, following the face of God is not seeing it. It's actually seeing his hind parts. So we're not claiming that we you know, know that much more than the rest of the world but are following his, his cue, his lead. Now I think that's a good insight. Yeah. Yeah. What, what is it that makes a people distinct, right? That you could slip that in. That could kill your people. Yeah. What does it mean to be a peculiar people is to, is to follow, but not yet see the face of God. Right. So there's following and seeing, you know, my sheep know my voice, but his form you have not seen. (laughs) <laughs> Reminds me of Hebrews 11 a little bit. You know, Abraham went to a land he uh, he did not see, you know, mm. seeking a, a homeland. He was a citizen of a of a heavenly country, but yeah. was a wanderer, wanderer on the earth. Yeah, faith, faith is the substance of things hoped for, things not seen. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, man, thank you so much for giving time. I hope this was of some value to our listeners. I'm sure everything you said was and huh. one or two things I did were. Yeah, thanks uh, thanks to Todd and Eric for their great production work. Can't imagine doing this without them. Thanks to, to Tom Adamson for uh, the theme music. And uh, yeah, thanks to all of you listeners. And uh, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. Anyway. <laughs> Leave it in. <laughs> <laughs>